KYW Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody. This is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. First, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Flashpoint podcast. Welcome to the Flashpoint family. Would you do me a favor? Would you log on to the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or whatever podcast platform that you use and subscribe to Flashpoint? All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. Now let's get to it. This week, the focus is organized workers. In recent days, reporters in public radio, then Philly's public defenders, each decide to unionize, and they're not alone. There's a reason I'm in a union. There's a reason my friends are in a union. Is the booming economy causing a union wave? Workers are getting a lower share of the profits than they used to. Who's joining? What's the upside and downside? We dig in. Then she's in her second full term in the Pennsylvania House and just smashed a glass ceiling in the Philly GOP. Unfortunately, what you've seen over the past decades is really just been lackluster. Her plans to make Republicans real players in city politics. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The Focus is a recent swath of union organizing that has captured headlines over the past few weeks. Reporters at WHYY, public defenders at the Defender Association of Philadelphia, each voted to unionize. And we've heard hospitality workers, even Uber and Lyft drivers, all organizing. Overall, union membership, though, countrywide has decreased. But in Pennsylvania, labor stats show a slight uptick. So what is behind the numbers and why are folks voting to unionize? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Joanna Maranescu. She's an assistant professor of public policy at UPenn. We also have Evan Kassoff. He's president of the Temple University Graduate Student Association. They've unionized but have some issues since then. We also have Dean Malik. He's a lawyer and outspoken conservative talk show host. And finally, on the phone, we have Reverend Mark Kelly Tyler. He's co-chair of the Board for Power. They've been working to organize a variety of groups across the city. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having us. Joanna, I want to start with you. What kind of economy makes it ripe for unions to grow? The unionization rate in Philadelphia has actually also declined quite a bit, maybe less than in other places, but certainly a lot more than our closest neighbors, New York City. Today, there might be an increase in unionization drives because the economy is very strong and we haven't seen a lot of wage growth. So I think workers are keen to do something to get, you know, part of the fruits of growth that we are seeing right now. Because wages have been stagnant. Wages have been stagnant for the average worker since 1980. There's been almost no increase uh, in wages for, you know, the person who's in the middle of the wage distribution. So basically just for the average Joe, not much wage increase. So people are wondering with such low unemployment, why is that? And, you know, kind of getting pumped up to try to do something about it, for example, for unionization. Evan, you guys unionized years ago, but... So we uh, unionized in 2001. We're the graduate student union. So we represent all the TAs and RAs at Temple University. And since then, a lot of things have been a lot better. Before we were a union, maybe you were making $10,000 a year teaching classes, grading papers, doing what graduate workers do, doing research. But you were also maybe had health insurance based on your capacity to negotiate with your chair. Now everyone has health insurance that's in our bargaining unit. Everyone has still bad wages, but better wages um, that are finally tracking with inflation after multiple rounds of contract negotiations. But we still face regular pushback from the university about on, on every little thing from things that seem really petty but are a really big deal in academics like printing to really big things like winning more power to deal with issues like sexual harassment in the workplace. And we'll come back to you, Evan, and go deeper into that. And I know, Mark, uh, Evan works within an organization, one university. You guys have been working across the city to get hospitality workers to come together. Power is an interfaith movement. Philadelphians organized to witness, empower, and rebuild And as an interfaith movement, um, you know, the clergy and lay people of churches, synagogues, masjids, and other uh, religious houses of faith believe strongly in standing with workers who are trying to get what everyone else wants, which is an opportunity at the American dream. Our biggest contribution has been over a multi-year struggle at the airport, standing with the workers who push wheelchairs and do many of the hospitality jobs there. Last week, a number of our clergy were arrested uh, in a die-in along with workers who we helped get better wages last year, but now 
cannot afford their health care. So that's the next big fight with uh, American Airlines. Yeah. And so, Dean, when you hear this, all this organizing, there's protests. What does that do for businesses in the city? You know, I want to start with a quote from probably the father of American organized labor, Um, not just American, maybe globally, Samuel Gompers. And what he is quoted as saying is the worst crime against working people is a company which fails to operate at a profit. Mm. So the genesis of organized labor was not anti-capitalist. It was to help workers organize in a way that benefits working people. And you could say that organized labor in this country historically was very instrumental in the creation of the American middle class. But there's another saying, and I'm not sure who to attribute this to. It says, history repeats itself, but only as farce. So what we have now is that the questions and the fights are no longer about safety. They're no longer about a living wage. They're no longer about exploitation of workers, which were true issues a century ago. But now we're talking about a balance of power between employers and businesses and workers who organize together and are demanding more and more benefits, more and more pay at the expense of the profits and at the expense of the employers. I think it's really important to recognize it stands to reason that an employer has a a certain amount of money that allocates towards paying workers. And when workers are organizing to fight to increase their benefits and increase their pay above and beyond what the market really demands or what's fair, that that diminishes the number of people who can be employed. And yeah, and, and we got and we yeah. got uh, Joanna over here pointing her finger. What do you right. have to say here? Very true that workers have been uh, bargaining for a long time, and in fact, we have data showing that they manage, for example, to get about fifteen to twenty percent of uh, you know wage increases, and that's been true historically in the U.S. But today, unionization is going down, social mobility is going down. And I've been working on exploitation, so you know the gap between productivity and wages, and showing that today this is a big issue in the U.S. economy, and presumably one of the reasons why we got here is actually the decline in unionization. Because, as you were saying, unions were playing this role, and now because fewer workers are unionized, there there is more difficulty for workers to even maintain, you know, yeah. what they used to get in the past. And I have to say that that somebody's making money. You know, the economy is growing. Uh, we have a 3.6% unemployment rate and we see CEOs making millions and millions of dollars. Should workers be able to get a pinch of that? And I, and I want our two uh, union. Yeah, yeah Evan, yeah. Um, Dr. Uh, Dr. Tyler. Oh, my gosh. Uh, of course, uh, you, workers should get a pinch of that. I think we should get more than a pinch of that. And I'd also want to say that it's not just for-profit corporations that are exploiting labor. Um, there's tons of nonprofit or ostensibly nonprofit organizations around the country that do variations on exploiting their labor. I mean, we just saw unionization at WHYY, which is a nonprofit. Um, we're unionized. There's 11 unions that Temple University bargains with because although Temple is a nonprofit public university, it runs itself internally like a for-profit organization and in so doing it exploits its labor. I take a lot of issue with the idea that when we're sitting at the bargaining table, we're asking for like some sort of like aloof benefits that extend beyond like the most reasonable compensation. At Temple University, graduate workers make the minimum is $18,000 a year. That's not a living wage in this city. It's not, I don't think it's a living wage anywhere in the country, but I'm not sure. And the idea that like workers are are making really unreasonable demands at the bargaining table when the cost of living increases, when the cost of health insurance increases, when the cost of health care outside of health insurance increases. And people can argue about this because, I mean, workers want uh, a variety of things. I guess it depends on on the issues. And, and Mark, I want you to jump in here because I know Dean mentioned that there are, quote, real issues. And I know hospitality workers were fighting for some of those issues. I'm sorry, Dean. I'm still stuck on the idea that Samuel Gompers would be used to... <laughs> <laughs> defend, you know, the persons who are making these incredible profits that some people say are record-breaking, right? The gap between the wealthiest in in these corporations and the poorest is kind of akin to somebody trying to prevent people to have the right to vote and using a Dr. King quote. I mean, I guess you can make anything fit, but, you know... Are you the, saying the uh, devil quotes scripture for his own purposes? I'm not going to say <laughs> oh. I, I don't know you that well, no, but... No, I just, my objection. <laughs> thank you. So... I don't want anybody tuning into this program at some point, you know, and kind of hearing that that that, that needs to be qualified. There is a there's a moral imperative, and so for groups like us, for power and for faith based groups around the country through our network that stand with workers, 
that there is a moral imperative for these major corporations, for your Comcast, for your American Airlines, for your Coca-Colas, for all of these major corporations around the world. These CEOs should not be able to sleep at night if you have employees working for these top-tier corporations who cannot pay their bills, who cannot feed their families without taking public assistance, who cannot afford health care. I mean, it is heartbreaking when you actually talk to the workers. I mean, that's what our organizing begins by talking to the people who live closest to the pain. Uh, seven, eight years ago when we started working at the airport in that campaign, to hear these mothers who have to take public transportation to the airport and back and stay overtime or lose their jobs, I mean, it is absolutely gut-wrenching. And we're lacking moral imagination in this moment. The people say it's a moral issue. We saw Occupy Wall Street, right, where people say the 1% is making all the money and we the 99, we're broke as, as H-E double hockey sticks, right? <laughs> but globalism, can we talk about that? Um, a lot of American companies have said, you know what? Ameri- all y'all unions, we're moving on to Mexico. We're moving on to China. We're going to go to Indonesia and we're going to take all of our jobs with us. Dean. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of unintended and unforeseen consequences from according an extraordinary amount of power to organized labor. And I should be clear, this really isn't about the rank and file workers either. Everybody, I think, would agree that workers should be entitled to a fair wage uh, given the demand and the supply for what they're performing. But this is really about the power of unions to destroy business productivity, to drive up consumer costs for everybody. And you've seen it and you alluded to it in the beginning of the program where businesses are actually not going to jurisdictions where labor has a tremendous amount of power and they're not bringing jobs with them because the compliance costs and the costs imposed upon them for dealing with the extraordinarily overempowered unions are too much. And they'll go elsewhere, including offshore. Oh, just to – And go right ahead. One One answer, Germany. So Germany is one of the lowest unemployment, most competitive, high expert country in the world, also has extremely powerful unions. And a recent paper shows that unions actually increase productivity. And of course, it doesn't have to be always the case. But in a good case scenario, unions and employers are working hand in hand in order for the company to grow and prosper. And that can be a benefit to all, like we're growing the pie uh, for everybody. And it, it, it is the case in Germany that they've had a lot of success uh, with such uh, unions bargaining and co- cooperating with uh, employers in order to make Germany a success. And, and just also to, to jump in, like, it, it's important to also talk about the other side of this power balance you're talking about. Oh, powerful unions are destroying productivity. The other side is powerful companies are destroying lives. And that's where like the moral argument is, is that on one side, we, we, we worry about the dollars and cents of like how much extra profit a, a corporation might make or a business or even a nonprofit organization that's like building its, its reserves. But on the other hand, there are people whose lives are dependent on this work. We don't live in a society where the employment market is so liquid that you have a bad day at work and you just go work somewhere else. We are dependent on this for life. Yeah. And the idea that like life is on one side of this power dynamic and on the other side is productivity and that we should be concerned about the productivity when we can't build a society where if productivity is suffering but light people are dying and we're like oh we need to worry about the productivity like that is the moral problem here and and mark can you jump in here because there are real concerns that that the unions do deal with and and could you talk about the difference between workers that are not organized and some of the things they have to deal with versus when they are unionized. Could you give me a couple examples? So we're talking about the difference between poverty and being able to actually, you know, pay your bills and raise your family. Um, I mean, I refer you to the, to the story. It's out there now. I mean, you know, the story out there from last week, again, where my colleagues were arrested along with Unite Here and workers at the airport. So great. Well, wonderful victory went from $7 or seven ninety or so an hour for those workers to twelve twenty, that was a big victory. That those are real dollars. You know that four fifty an hour or so that they had an increase. That makes a big difference over the course of the year. But because they don't have health care coverage, right? I mean, you're talking about people who, if you're if you're sick or if you have a child that's sick or a dependent that's sick, almost all of your money is eaten up in just health care. That doesn't even address issues like clothes for your children, food for your children. And, you know, I'm the product of a mom who was a postal employee who became a part of a union, 
who before that worked at a hospital that was not unionized, and they basically forced her to quit her job when she was pregnant with me. It was decide on whether to keep your kid with a, tr- with a pregnancy that is giving you problems or keep your job. That's, you're talking about what's the real, what the real face of this is? That's the real face of this. This is about protecting you, workers' rights, not about gouging companies and making them unprofitable. That, would just, that, that doesn't even make sense. Yeah. And Dean, I want you to come back in here. Are there other arguments that can be made to push back? And does it interfere with individual liberty? Because not everybody wants to be in it. Well, that's one issue is imposing uh, union membership upon everybody is one issue. It does does infringe upon that liberty of workers. But I think when you're talking about these horrible cases of people being put out of work or being faced with the choice of being fired or keeping a baby or difficult pregnancy, those are horrible situations that I don't think anyone believes people should be forced to go through. But there's also an ugly face to unionization. And I just want to talk about what's going on in Philadelphia. It would be wrong not to mention the scandal that's going on right now with Johnny Dock. John Dockerty is a member of uh, a prominent leader of Local 98, uh, Electrical Workers Union. And he's been indicted federally for being a co-conspirator with a a city council member sitting right now, Bobby Heenan, represents Northeast Philadelphia, for using his position in the union to basically own government in Philadelphia. Because when the unions become overly powerful, they have all the people on this show are representing the positive effects of unions and the horrible things that corporations do, but they're not mentioning what unions can do when they have power. Bobby Heenan was using his seat. Basically, it was he was given a no pay, no show, a, a paid no show job with the union to do the, the union's bidding. And it really wasn't benefiting even the workers. It was benefiting the hierarchy of the union. So there is a balance of power that needs to be maintained. And while you look at corporations and you can present them as this caricature of greedy organizations that only care about the fat cats, you also have to talk about what union does when it gets overempowered and corrupt. There have been bad stories about Philly unions being, you know, likened to the mob and coercing people and beating folks up and all kinds of stuff. We've seen the stories in the headlines. Comments on that. You know, like when we're talking about humans, there's always the bad actors, you know, on, on, on any side side of this uh, of this equation but i i think while this has to be looked at by the police and by the authorities the big picture nevertheless remains that if we look at profits and you know corporations have been able to increase their profits over cost by at least 50 percent since 1980 so they are getting more out of consumers as well and then you have to wonder where this is going. And as I said, the bottom 50% of Americans aren't seeing essentially any of that. It's all gone for the most part to the top 1%. And so uh, unions are just one of the vehicles through which we can seek to have a fairer sharing of the pie. And again, that doesn't deny that there can be excesses. And I just want to add one more thing, which is as an economist, I have to say that when unions bargain for things that are above and beyond what a company can decently support given the economics, it does happen. The company might get go under in the worst case. It might have to downsize. There are potential negative effects. When do unions demand more than what the company can give? It can happen. And that's the economics. So there is a limit. It's just that right now at the macro level, it might not be true in every company. The big picture is that workers are getting a lower share you know, of the profits than they used to. And therefore, again, at the macro level, there is room for workers to grow. Got to ask my my two union folk here because we saw the GM issue. There was a strike and nobody really won. It cost billions of dollars to the company. Comments on that, because when unions and and the companies (laughs) go head to head, there are repercussions. And the ripple effect is not just within the company. It could be international. Right. And I mean, so, of course, but like Dean's talking about balance of power, but the balance of power is supposed to be struck at the bargaining table. And when either side isn't acting in faith, it's a lot more difficult to find that. Yeah, there's repercussions. On one side, there's like life and death is on the table. And on the other side, there's billions of dollars in profit. When when we were negotiating our last contract, we were advised by the mediator because we preemptively just brought in a mediator for our contract negotiations with Temple because they had gone so poorly in the past that we were like, we need an outside mediator from the state who will oversee all of this. And they were like, a good contract is one where no one's happy. Yeah. And that's really important to know. Like, yeah, you couldn't get your car fixed and that sucks. But like 
these people can't take their kids to the doctor and that sucks i think a little bit more and like that is that is like really at the heart of what all of this is about is that maybe it's a caricature that corporations are evil and greedy but like the university of pittsburgh graduate workers tried to unionize recently and when they had their authorization vote in the run-up to it the university of pittsburgh was telling international students that they could get deported if they voted in favor of this which was a blatant lie and it's gone to the pennsylvania labor relations board and they've been censored or whatever the ruling was from yeah. the PLRB, of course businesses are yeah. greedy. Like, that's not a caricature. That is reality. They and, have a fiduciary responsibility to be greedy. And we've heard we've heard with fast food workers that people have been fired. If people yeah. heard that they were like talking to unions or possibly thinking about unionizing. So it, it's it's very perilous work. Mark? Well, Cherry, yeah, I was going to say, listen, I, I am a witness. I've spoken to workers, McDonald's workers, and and otherwise in this city over the last number of years of our organizing who have been threatened with their employment for meeting with u- union organizers, for talking to us. I mean, this is 2019. I, mean, I thought that those days were the things of black and white movies and, you know, newsreels from the 1920s and the early part of the 20th century. But those scare tactics are still prevalent today. We've been working trying to organize, you know, the, the people who clean hotel rooms at some of the biggest hotels here in Philadelphia. As clergy, we've tried to go and get meetings. You've been threatened with being put out of the building and watch these workers as well face termination. And some have been terminated for the most minor offenses, but everyone knows that it's really because they're trying to organize. So we're, what we're facing is corporations that don't want to be fair, that don't want to be generous, that don't want to act in the spirit of sharing the wealth, if they did that from the beginning, there would be less organizing to begin with. Your, your yeah. response to that, Dean? Yeah. Less organ If they were fair, y'all pay right. people better wages. <laughs> <laughs> right. You gave you us know? what we wanted, we wouldn't have this problem. I mean, I think the key is collective bargaining is supposed to be just that, bargaining. And the problem arises when you have unions that essentially become so powerful that it's no longer really a fair bargain because they wind up infiltrating arms of government. They have legislators that pass laws that give them unfair advantages, that make certain mandates and requirements that impose impose those requirements and mandates on employers. We're hearing a lot of talk about life or death and you know, it's as if the, the greedy corporations are, are causing people to die. But I'll give you an example of life or death to go back to the Bobby Heenan indictment as a sitting – Uh, city councilman, uh, he threatened to withhold approval for Children's Hospital for life-saving equipment that was required to be serviced by certain technicians because they were not union technicians. And he threatened to do it because he was under the pay of the union under Johnny Dock. And we, so this happens. It's life or death on both sides. A lot of people say conventions here are super expensive because you got to have these union people and there's a minimum amount of hours you got to pay them and all this kind of stuff. And so people have said that it's kept business out of Philly. It's it's slowed uh, development in Philadelphia. I know it is, it's tempting to look at the one bad example and then generalize, right? So we take the particular and we make that the general. But it's just not the case. First of all, the local 98 case is still in, you know, those are indictments. Those are not facts. And that have everybody's been innocent yet. until proven guilty. That's yes. exactly right. So, and I have my own issues with some of the unions in Philadelphia. Let's talk about the FOP, for example. There are some unions that have issues, but those tend to be the exception and not the rule. Mm. When, I mean, when you're talking about the, the workers at some of these big hotels like the Marriott and places like that, that just want to get a fair share, these are, are women who, again, just really, for the most part, want to bring home something yeah. to their families to provide. These are not unions that are trying to shake down government, that are not trying to co-opt and, and you know, turn the wheels yeah. of government yeah. to their advantage. Just want to, you know, put that on the table. And, and we got that. And so I want to shift a little bit before we wrap this up, because the largest segment of the population joining uh, unions now, under 35, uh, hundreds of thousands every year unionizing and in new sectors. Uh, I would love to hear uh, you, um, Joanna, talk about that. And you, Evan, I mean, this is the next generation and where they're they're running the unions in droves. Why? One possible explanation is that this is the first generation where we've reached a point where a child is as likely as not to make less than their parents. So it used to be, you know, in the 60s and, and 70s, you know, you would be almost certain to make more than your parents. Today, it's a flip of a coin. So I think the newer generations realize the situation that we are in and are more ready to, you know, get out there and try to do something about it. And I also wanted to say that 
This actually helps everybody because new research shows that there's spillover effects from unions, meaning it's not just the worker who's in a union who might see a higher wage, but also the worker next door who's not unionized now having to compete with the unionized workplace that other employer has to pay more or otherwise offer better conditions so that they can still attract workers. So we have to remember that unions don't only benefit their members, but also have positive spillover effects on other workers, therefore, you know, spreading the goods around uh, through the market, actually, through competition, which I think is really interesting for me as an economist. Yeah, but because this is Flashpoint, we do have to wrap this up. I want to say for years, unions were considered a thing of the past, but we're slowly seeing a major shift. Give me some predictions, y'all. What will the new age of union, what will that be like? I can't tell you what's going to happen next week, let alone, you know, in the future with unions. People will always have a right to organize and they always should have a right to organize in, in, in a free market society and in our republic. That should always remain the case. But I think there's going to be a constant push and pull between employers who have a mandate to be profitable and be efficient. And it's not just greedy employers, but it's also the people who have 401ks that are invested in those companies, not wealthy people. Um, it has a ripple effect across the economy. And I think it's going to be a constant push and pull in a balancing act between the rights of workers to organize and the necessity of growing the economy and growing profits for corporations that benefits everybody. Wonderful. I'm I'm cautiously optimistic about the future of unions. I think like you, you just talked a minute ago about how people under 35 are the, the fastest growing union membership. I'm under 35. There's a reason I'm in a union. There's a reason my friends are in a union. We see the disillusionment around us. The the fact that like I don't know anybody who's going to have a career for 40 years. It is not reality anymore what it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. Last time unions were strong. And also unions now have a responsibility to their members that it's different than they were 40 years ago because now we're organizing around issues like sexual harassment in the workplace, not yeah. just wages and benefits. There is more that organized labor can deal with than just whether or not I have a good enough paycheck. And I think when people realize that organized labor can mean organizing your entire life in a more healthy and productive way for yourself. Like they join the union because the union works for them because they are the union. They are the union. So I'm cautiously optimistic as well because of the drive of newer generations to get a bigger share of the pie. However, this will require a constant attention from policymakers to allow unions to exist and as well as new forms of organizing, which, you know, I hope this you know, young generations will come up with new ideas and hopefully good ones uh, that will end up benefiting everybody. Yeah, final word, Mark. Well, I'm always optimistic, and uh, I'll tell you that a part of my drive for supporting unions stems from my faith tradition, and I think about Moses and Aaron, the faith uh, first union organizer, so to speak, who went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, and, <laughs> you know, didn't look good then. <laughs> Uh, but somehow the Red Sea of impossibility parted and the people crossed safely to the other side. And so I think each generation has a responsibility to to push back against the Pharaoh of their day. And I'm glad to see young people standing up and taking this moment. Well, on that Moses analogy, I want to say thank you to uh, Joanna Marinescu, Evan Kassoff, Dean Malik, and Dr. Mark Kelly Tyler for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Next up, she broke age barriers and is now smashing glass ceilings at the GOP. People want someone who's going to stand up for what they believe in, too. Pennsylvania Representative Martina White talks about her new role as Philly GOP chair. We'll be right back. I'm Matt Leon, sports reporter and anchor here at KYW News Radio. Talking to athletes, coaches, people in Philly sports every day, you find out they have incredible stories to tell. So I started a podcast, a weekly conversation with someone you should know more about. It's called One-on-One -on -one with Matt Leon. Subscribe now wherever you listen. If you like what you hear, be sure to stick around, subscribe to the podcast, and check out some of our past episodes. We talk with newsmakers like Youssef Salam from the Central Park Five, Lonnie Bunch, Secretary of the Smithsonian, and so many others. We've debated issues like maternal mortality and the Byron Allen $20 billion lawsuit against Comcast. It's currently at the U.S. Supreme Court. If you don't know what it's all about, check out the episode. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. Our Newsmaker of the Week is the first woman to ever chair the Philadelphia GOP. 
In her second full term, Pennsylvania Representative Martina White has made headlines during her four years in the state house, becoming a leading conservative voice providing opposition to progressive city leadership. Then in recent weeks, when Republicans lost a long-held seat in Philadelphia City Council to an independent, the party elected her to forge a new path. And now she's here in the KW studios. Rep White, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you so much for having me. Congratulations. You're now the chair of the Philadelphia Republican Party. Yes, it's very exciting. We're really looking forward to just taking off. We're having a fresh start here in Philadelphia. We're bringing in a whole slew of people that are new to the Republican Party. Uh, we're reaching out to all different neighborhoods, all different communities, making sure they're getting involved. So I got to take it back to the election because it was a tough day for Republicans with the independent. You had an independent literally snatch a city council seat that was long held by the GOP. So it was a certainly a, a tough day. And I would say for the whole city, actually, for the Republicans, it was certainly challenging because I think there were different groups within the party that were kind of splintered off and supporting different candidates within, you know, the offerings that were made from the Republican side. And that unfortunately resulted in a third party taking advantage of the the weaknesses that were there within our party. So people sort of came together, I guess. You won oh, by, yes. the lands, by uh, a landslide so, here. <laughs> so we definitely have all rallied together. We are all on board in terms of trying to make the Republican Party a stronger brand, a stronger kind of personality, if you will, within the city. Unfortunately, what you've seen over the past, I would say, probably decades uh, is really just been lackluster. There hasn't been much of a voice of opposition. There's really hasn't been as as much accountability uh, of the you know of the Democrat Party within City Hall. There hasn't been much advocacy, and that's what's going to change. We are working to build a stronger communications network, a base of support that otherwise hadn't been there before. Yeah, we did a show a few months ago talking about one-party politics. And there's huge downsides to not having viable challengers. And we've seen that in Philadelphia, people staying on years and years and years. So what is your strategy? Have you come up with something yet? Well, we're definitely working on it. It started with the actual vote in terms of trying to bring in new leadership. And I greatly appreciate all of the ward leaders who selected me Mm -hmm. to be their party chair I think that in and of itself is a message to the city, uh, to people from all different backgrounds, all different neighborhoods, to know that we're ready. We are ready for a fresh start. We're ready for a new opportunity, and we're willing to put the work in to make a difference in our city. So you grew up in the Northeast. I did. You're a millennial. I am okay. a millennial. Look Full out. Full-fledged oh, yes. millennial. Broke age barriers when you were you came into office in 2015, and now you broke the gender barrier. And you're in a swing district. Why do you think so many Democrats sort of crossed party lines and chose you? I think that the people in Northeast Philadelphia have seen what is going on in the city. They're concerned, and they want it to be addressed. And they think that what I have done and the messaging that I have been able to be a voice for them in Harrisburg is something that they want to continue. And that's why I think I've been able to get reelected. We've been trying to bring back better paying jobs to the area, bring better quality education to our schools, and even keep our communities safe. And I think those are very basic principles of government. But for whatever reason, they've been kind of previously ignored. And that's what our focus uh, has been over these past few years that I've been in office. And I think we've had a lot of success around those. Yeah. Do you think there's a there was a section of Philly like Northeast that people feel like they weren't being listened to? I think that's exactly the case. I think the the people in Northeast Philadelphia are very hardworking, blue collar, you know, middle class families who want to be able to go on a vacation once a year, be able to enjoy spending time with their family, be able to afford putting food on the table. And back when I first ran, we were coming out of the Great Recession. And that's what I think really sparked an interest in what I what I had to say and how people were feeling at that time. And that's their willingness to come from a different perspective, a different party to vote for me, I think is based upon that that message. Now, you've been unafraid to challenge the progressives in the city. I mean, you've gone head to head with the mayor on certain issues, specifically with immigration, also police reform. How do you get that kind of Billy um, Seven? No, yeah, no. just the off to kind of to buck the collective will. I think it's just the way I was raised. I I think when you believe something so wholeheartedly and you have a passion and you you care about the people that you grew up with. I mean, the Northeast is where I live. It's it's where I grew up. It's where my family lives. It's where my friends are. And it's it's a community that I care about. I want it to see I want to see it be successful and flourish. And I I just said this in in another interview, but it's the truth, you know. 
And we have to fight for those things. We can't just expect these things to happen on their own. Um, And unfortunately, when you're being overtaxed, overworked, overburdened by city policies that have been almost entrenched for decades, and you haven't seen an alternative for a really long time, when finally something comes along, someone comes along and expresses that alternative view, people jumped at it. They 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 want um they they want someone who's going to stand up for for what they believe in too. Yeah, and I've noticed that th- that's the thing about the Republican Party it hasn't it's been kind of more neutral. It hasn't really had anybody just kind of say no, we disagree with this wholeheartedly uh, in the way that you have. And why do you think that is? I guess. No guts, no glory. <laughs> you know, you kind of, again, you, you you have to stand up for what you believe in. You can't just be complacent. And something that my chief of staff always tells me, and he's a good friend, uh, Will, he, he always tells me, Martina, if we just allow for the narrative to be there that is told by someone else, fact-checked or not, and we don't give an alternative viewpoint, everyone's just going to believe that narrative. There will mm. be no alternative. There will be no voice of opposition. And it's, it's just a recognition that whatever they said was true. Yeah. And that may not be the case. Sometimes opposition makes you better. Like, you, you need people challenging you on every level. Uh, and not just accepting whatever one side says. Diversity of thought, yeah. for sure. And speaking of diversity, how do you plan on, you know, drawing in more folk of different backgrounds into the Philly GOP? I think that's the the whole part of why I wanted to get involved as well. And when I'm in Harrisburg, I get to work with all different uh, backgrounds, people from different communities across the Commonwealth. But specifically the the delegation that comes from Philadelphia, we have uh, people of color. We have diversity in that delegation and the Republican Party has been lacking that completely. To me, it's embarrassing. It's it really is, and it's totally wrong, especially because Philadelphia is a you know I don't even know if they should be using this term anymore, but majority minority city, and it's something to be proud of. And the fact that it hasn't been embraced in past years, it puts me in a really great position to let people know that we are open to diversity. That you anyone who's willing to come forward and become part of the Republican Party and believes in similar values that we have, they're shared values, values like family and, you know, being able to choose what school you want to go to. Nobody who wants, doesn't want jobs? Right, jobs, <laughs> jobs. You know, nobody wants to be taxed out the wazoo. Like, come on. And these are very simple things that we stand for that really haven't been messaged in really a lot of different neighborhoods across the city. But that's what my plan is, is to really get more people involved from all different neighborhoods, all different backgrounds, bring diversity to the to the Republican Party, because diversity of thought is really important. Yeah. And I think you're the only uh, Republican from Philly. Yes. And the, the, the delegation. How does that work out and what issues do you guys all agree on? So I was actually just at a at an event yesterday with a variety of members. It was a chamber event. And uh, Philadelphia Chamber of Commerce, right? And uh, Jordan Harris was there. Mm. Jordan is awesome. He's the minority whip in Harrisburg. He is dedicated to his community. And just like I am, but we find things that are common ground that can benefit Philadelphians from all different neighborhoods. One of which uh, we were discussing was the gun violence on our streets. And every time I see an article about a little kid that gets shot. Mm. It's so disheartening. It's an issue that goes beyond party. It, it doesn't matter what party you're affiliated with. These are human lives. These are people who we all care about. And we need to make sure that they're able to be brought up and raised in a community that's safe and that they have the resources that they need in order to get the the different care that can bring them into a position to be successful. I know gun violence is a topic I think that is becoming, is getting national attention. It's been getting national attention for so long. We just had a 16-year-old girl, straight-A student, at one of the local charter schools get shot, getting off a bus and lost her life. No one knows what to do, but hopefully everybody can come together and work on that. Do you think, given, I have to say, because the national leader, our president, is a Republican, Mm -hmm. does it help or hurt? Um, this kind of hope or desire to pull everything together. National politics is really polarizing, right, mm-hmm. and divisive, and it doesn't really help matters, especially on local when it comes to local um, issues or even statewide issues. And so that's been my focus as a state legislator is really to just focus on the neighborhoods that I'm able to impact. But when it comes to, like, 
the city officials and the state officials, we all have to work together, uh, and it has to go beyond, again, the party lines in order to get stuff done. And the state, you know, controls certain amount of, of money mm-hmm. that we send mm-hmm. up to, to, to the state. And the same thing is true for the federal government. You know, we as taxpayers send money up to the federal government, and we have to work in order to make sure that there are effective policies that are going to be um, impacting in a positive way our local communities. And I think politics in general is is tough. Yeah. Know? And it doesn't help when you, when you have uh, a lot of divisiveness. Yeah. <laughs> stay, you're like, stay away. Oh, my God. <laughs> you away. guys, you're, you're, you're killing me over here because, it, you know, not a lot gets done down there, you know. Yeah. It's all gridlock and arguments back and forth and – in the state house, at least, like I was just mentioning, like Jordan Harris and I and other members of the Philadelphia delegation and all the different members from, you know, across across the Commonwealth, we, we try to work together and find the things that we can compromise on and get stuff done. Yeah, that's that's the whole point. Do you think that gridlock in Washington is even more motivation to get stuff done on the state and local levels? It is most definitely. Yeah, um, I can tell you there you just, for instance, as the chair of the Transportation Infrastructure Task Force. The reason that we have to take this issue on, uh, you know, head first is because when the federal government isn't taking action since like 1993, they haven't done, you know, I guess the gas tax, they haven't raised it since 1993. And it's I'm not saying you raise taxes, but, you know, you have to sometimes raise revenues in order to pay for the things that are very, very much needed. And right now, the, uh, Pennsylvania has a five and a half billion dollar annual need for infrastructure yeah. investment. Philadelphia, in 2022, $450 million is no longer going to be sent from the Pennsylvania Turnpike Commission over to pay for mass transit within the general fund. Yeah. And so that burden is going to fall on the General Assembly to figure out how we're going to to pay for that. But why would you wait until 2022 to figure that out? We can take and break it down into increments and be able to address it over time. And that's what one of the proposals that we have is to, is to get that done. But it's in part because the federal government hasn't stepped up since the time that they went and put in place all the uh, the interstate system. Right. We have all these interstate highways. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's just it's very uh, frustrating for us at the state level because we have to, again, come forward mm-hmm. and figure out and not that we shouldn't be doing it. But, you know, we constantly have to come to the table and find ways to address these these issues when the federal government doesn't take action. Yeah, I think it's making municipal local governments much more effective and people are paying attention now yes, when they, they used are. to ignore these local elections. And I'm like, come on, people. They're very important. They're it's not like you important. can call the, you know, you can't call the president and say, hey, can you fix this for me? Because my road is not paved. But I'm sure or, you get those calls. You know, but we, we <laughs> yeah. get all those phone yeah. calls and we're happy to get them because that's what your local government is for. Yeah, and we only have a couple more minutes, but sure. I want to ask you, like, what are the, some of the key uh, issues that you'll be working on in Harrisburg and that you think, you know, maybe the GLP should have to rally around to bring folk in? You know, there are a lot of charter reform pieces of legislation that are coming forward in order to hold them more accountable, but also to expand the program that's available right now. Um, I think that's important because there are many families across the region who are interested in having the ability to send their child to a charter school. Um, I know, just for instance, mass charter is in the Northeast. They have thousands of kids that apply there every year, and they are not able to get in because of the lottery system. 30,000-some kids apply, and only 7,000 get in. So all of those other students that, that could yeah. be, you know, recipients of that type of education aren't able to, to do that, and their families, um, you know, deserve better. So that's one of the things that I think is going to be a focus for the, for the state um, moving forward. And then for me personally, I think we're going to really work toward um, – a lot more focus on on job creation, and there's some tax reforms we're going to be doing. For instance, I have a net operating loss. Probably will bore your bore a lot of people, at the moment. <laughs> but but in any case, we need to make our our city and the and the Commonwealth a better, uh, more efficient place for that will draw businesses here, so that we can create jobs for more people to be lifted out of poverty. Yeah, and so if we fast forward a few years and you look back, what would what would would make you say, you know what, I'm glad I was Philly GOP chair and, and this was a success? Look, I think um, for me, in terms of the Philly GOP chair, if we can get a, a large number of new people to be registered as a Republican, we're setting our, our goals high. 
But that and then also bringing in more diversity into our leadership team within the party, I think that's going to be a key focus of mine. And those are two you know, great goals that I have in mind. And I know uh, we have a retreat scheduled for the 14th so that our members of our own team can get together and have influence over how, the direction of the party that we want to take it all together instead of it kind of being a top-down model where we kind of just tell you what you're going to do and you know have no input from the from the people who really are in the community yeah you know they're your neighbors they're your friends they're the people that you can call up and say hey i I can't believe that the city just passed this bill it's probably going to shut down one of my local businesses because it's uh it's hurting us yeah so that those are the kinds of things where there there needs to be an outlet for people to go to to talk about these things and then also have somebody who's going to speak out on the you know I guess the opposing viewpoint, if you will. Representative Martina White, I wish you luck and thank you for being on Flashpoint. Thank you so much. All right. Next up, she's teaching youth the superpower needed to stop child sex abuse. If they go to disclose their abuse, without a shadow of a doubt, you'll know what they're talking about. The motivation behind a North Philadelphia teacher's mission. We'll be right back. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast and feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks all. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the radio.com app, Apple podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint KYW. And we here at KYW, we are all about community. And a Philadelphia native is using her personal experience to educate parents and empower children on how to stop child sex abuse. The teacher, public speaker, and advocate is now an author. Here to tell us more about her new book, My Voice is My Superpower, is Sharia Shows. Welcome to Flashpoint. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I appreciate this opportunity. Wonderful. So we met when you were at an event um, showcasing this beautiful book that you have. Um, Tell us why you decided to write it. The reason why I decided to write the book is because of my own personal experience as a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. I was um, sexually abused by my cousin. PTSD caused me to not remember the exact age, but I know it was before I was the age of 10, and I was abused by my cousin. And when I disclosed my abuse, not to my mother, but to an adult relative who asked all of us, were we ever abused? Nothing was done. Yeah. Well, they didn't know what to do. Well, you know, they didn't take it as serious because my cousin was an older cousin. So, you know, later they said, well, we just looked at y'all as though y'all were just kissing cousins. They didn't know the extent of the abuse. There were no questions asked. So that left me, this young girl, 10 years old, to be stuck in her trauma and to cope the best way I could. And so you decided to write this book. And and tell us about the book. So the book, um, as we call it, My Voice is My Superpower, it's about a boy. His name is Buddy. He's nine years old. And his mother, she's very vigilant about teaching the body safety rules. The body safety rules is one of the ways to help with prevention. And he was about to go over his cousin's house to spend the night. And his mother said, well, you can't go until we review the body safety rules. Let me make sure that you know the rules. So he sang the rules to his mother, and she's so proud. And she said, okay, you have it. You got it now. Now I can leave you. Because it's unrealistic to think that the kids will never go over a family member's house to spend the night. But you have to make sure. A big mistake that a lot of parents make, I think, is not giving kids the tools, the real names of body parts and things like that so that they can... They can actually speak to you and speak to others in charge to let them know what's happening. Yes, and that's one of the things I speak about in my book. I speak about the body parts, and because a lot of times we teach children that the body parts is ooh, it's yucky, it's nasty, so we'll call it a cookie or we call it a woo-woo or a pee-pee or a hot dog. We have to let them know that this is your body, this is a part of your body. So at the age of three, teach them how you teach them your head, shoulders, knees, toes. Oh, this is your penis, this is your vagina. So that if they go to disclose their abuse, They won't, without a shadow of a doubt, you'll know what they're talking about. There's a famous story about a young girl. She was a little baby, maybe four years old. She was going to school every day and saying, my uncle ate my cookie. She was disclosing her abuse. But her teacher did not know that she was disclosing abuse because she used the term cookie. So what happened? She actually ended up 
not saying anything else. You know, she could have been helped because the teacher would have known if she said my uncle ate or my uncle touched or my uncle bit my vagina, you know, or he put his penis on me. And also it helps the children to feel comfortable when you're talking about sexual abuse. Yeah. And so you go and speak at schools, you educate parents on how to talk to their kids about this because it's a tough conversation for parents to have. So I share information on the Internet, on my Facebook page, on my um, Instagram page. I've done several workshops where I teach parents. I've taught at schools. I've taught teachers and a principal how to respond to a child who have experienced trauma. Because this book isn't just a book. It's a teaching tool, too. So you can read it from cover to cover, or you can go back and forth through the pages and have a discussion for parents. One of the things that I thought was interesting is the name. My voice is my superpower. Because a lot of people suffer, a lot of kids suffer in silence, afraid to speak up. Yes, kids and adults. They live in shame. Childhood sexual abuse, there's a grooming period. Mm. There's a process. So during this process, um, the sexual abuser develops a secret sexual relationship with you. They groom your parents. They groom the children. So when they have that first touch, the child's body may respond in a positive way. So because it's not forced. It's very rare. Is it forced? They're forcing themselves on you. Don't misunderstand me when I say that. But a lot of children, they live in shame because why didn't I say anything? Why did my body enjoy it but hate it, if you understand what I mean? You don't have control over the natural reaction of your body. So if someone is stimulating you, someone is touching you, your body begins to have a feeling and the boys are upset, you know, especially if it's um, same-sex abuse. The males are very upset. Why did my penis become erect? And this man performed oral sex on me. Am I gay? They're upset because I didn't tell sooner. They're upset because they blame themselves and they keep quiet. Yeah. And so my voice is my superpower is almost like battling against that, yes. that shame and saying this is a superpower if you speak up. Um, and you're you're Muslim. Yes. And and I'm sure with the Muslim community, there are, are separate issues there. Um, it's all the issues are the same in the Muslim community. This is a pandemic. It's all around mm-hmm. all America, internationally, nationally. But now 90 percent of the people, the children that are sexually abused are abused by people that they know. Mm-hmm. So it's someone that you trust because that's the only way they can gain access to your child. So it can be the child's mother, the child's father, sexually oh. abused and step parents. So even though we're separated in the Muslim community, it still happens. It It happens happens. overseas rapidly. It happens by leaders in the community. It's true. It's true. How do they bring you in so you can train some parents? I'm on Facebook and my my organization is Body Speaks Foundation. So I provide childhood sexual abuse preventative education for parents, for churches, for schools, for everywhere. So you can like and follow my page. B-U-D-D-Y underscore speaks, S-P-E-A-K-S. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much to you, Sharia Schultz, for coming on Flashpoint. And uh, good luck on your book, My Voice is My Superpower. Uh, Check her out. Thank you so much. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As Franklin Delano Roosevelt once said, there's no better customer to industry than the well-paid worker. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.